This week, we are pleased to have James Fulton on the show. James is the Chief Learning Officer at Goldman Sachs and the Global Head of Pine Street. Pine Street is the leadership development group that develops the senior-most leaders at Goldman Sachs, as well as key clients of the firm. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So, James, let me just start with um, a question uh, that I'm really interested in. I suspect Jess is as well. And that is, you know, what led you to where you are today? Uh, that if you could talk about your journey uh, ending up at uh, one of the, you know, largest financial services firms uh, on planet Earth, uh, you know, leading global teams, um, you know, moving an integrated talent agenda forward. Uh, how did how did you get here? Yeah, sometimes I ask myself that same question. Uh, <clears throat> career is always that linear in the rear view mirror. But when you look through the windscreen, it's often foggy and hazy, the road ahead. Maybe briefly, uh, I come from a family of teachers and doctors. And so growing up, People and people issues were always part of the dialogue and always interesting to me. <clears throat> Another branch of my family were entrepreneurs, started businesses. And so sometimes I think of the work I'm doing as having put that family background together. I work in business, but on people issues. That's how I conceive of it. The short story of how it happened was um, I started I, I, at university. I did a humanities degree. I, was, I did ancient history and uh, 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 ancient philosophy. So I was interested again, and people and why things happen. But I started my career as a management consultant, a strategy consultant. So immediately I was in this space of in businesses, solving business problems, but always drawn to the human side of those problems. And in my 20s, I worked for a startup in Silicon Valley and maintained a business career. But by night, I worked for a suicide hotline. And at the end of my 20s, I decided to put kind of my counseling people experience together with my business experience. I did an MBA at INSEAD. I focused on organizational behavior. And out of that, I joined a small consulting firm working with boards and senior teams on the issues of culture and performance and leadership. And I think what was really driving that for me was this space is both, uh, I often say it's, it's, it's satisfying above the neck and below the neck. Above the neck meaning it's intellectually very engaging. It's critically important the way that leaders lead and cultures are built. It's also personally very meaningful uh, work that we're engaged in and it has the power to transform and change companies and the people that work within them and the societies within which they operate. So it, it, it's satisfying and challenging on a number of levels. I became a partner of that consulting firm. I had met Goldman uh, actually during my MBA. One of my professors, now a dear mentor, had, had, was at that time working with Goldman, introduced me to the, the team. Uh, and then in 2009, I think I was in conversation with them and they said, hey, we're looking for somebody to run our Pine Street Leadership Development Group in Europe. Pine Street is the group that focuses on the, on the development of the, the, essentially the partners of the firm. Um, and I said as a joke, actually not as a joke, I said, you know what, in 10 years time, I'd love to do that. Uh, thinking to do that, you had to be an esteemed wise old bird uh, and, and hoping that I would be that in 10 years from the time we had the call. Anyway, that person said, well, why don't, why don't you apply? Why don't you throw a hat in the ring? So I went to this fateful interview where I knew I wasn't going to get the job, but I was just curious to see behind the plateless door of Goldman Sachs, you know, no name. 
And so I went in with nothing to lose because I thought I had nothing to gain. I was very relaxed. And guess what? One thing led to another. And several months and many interviews later, they offered me a role. Actually, it turned out as the head of Pine Street in Asia. So I joined the firm. I moved my young family to Hong Kong, uh, where I started the leadership development group. Our Asia business at that time was growing, still is was growing a number of issues, leadership, organizational, cultural issues in a very interesting complex region. And then, you know, one thing led to another and here I am with this, with this bigger role. My role now is primarily focused on Pine Street. So my, 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 my main focus and time is as the head of Pine Street. So focus on the senior leadership of the firm, it's, it's, uh, its development and its performance. Yeah, this is just a fascinating story. Uh, if truth be told, James, I, Actually, in preparation for our conversation, listen to one of your uh, previously recorded uh, webinars, seminars. I think you were a guest lecturer, um, and I was really blown away. I think you started your presentation by quoting an 18th century French writer, uh, and then you quickly pivoted to John Dewey. And now I, now that I know you have a humanities background, ancient history, it, it's making a lot of sense. Um, but one of the things that really struck me in, in your presentation is how deeply you think about learning. I think you started by talking about mindset and how we need to really uh, move from a fixed mindset to a, a growth mindset within the organizations that we're privileged to, uh, to work at. And then you, you talked about, you know, what is, what is learning for? Kind of this fundamental question. But one of the things that I really jotted down I think you were just starting this at Goldman, but correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it's the what to teach and how to deliver. Those are things that I think you said we, we pretty much know how to do, but where it gets a little bit gray and messy is who, when, and where. And you had started or at least discussed this um, program where you looked at the firm's major initiatives. And in terms of the who, uh, you then identified, or senior leaders at, at Goldman identified the individuals that were responsible for those initiatives, and those are the individuals that actually would be receiving enhanced uh, uh, a training, leadership development, what have you. And I'm just so curious, is that a practice that continues to this day? And if so, what, what have you learned uh, over the uh, ensuing two or three years? Yes, it is. <clears throat> I want just to go back to when you referenced, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound pretentious by quoting all these old thinkers, but I, so I want to just, just say for people listening to this podcast, what I said, make it tangible, you know, that French philosopher, what he said that I love is teaching is, is learning twice. In other words, if you really want to learn something, try to teach it. And when you're teaching, if you don't have a learning mindset, you're probably not a very effective teacher. That was the point there. And the John Dewey was about the one doing the talking as the one doing the learning. And so it's always important as, a as any sort of educator, or by the way, as any sort of leader, and we, maybe we can come on to the interplay between learning and leadership and leadership as coaches. <clears throat> the one doing the talking is the one doing the learning. In other words, it's best often to close your mouth and listen to your employee, your team, or whomever it is, because they're the one that's you know, the, the talking as a way of uh, verbalizing. But in respect of your, you know, your primary question, which I think is very interesting, because how I, how, what I hear you asking that question is, 
Like, what are the int? How do you intervene in a system to make sure that it learns? That's what I. Um, that's what I hear you you getting at. And what I think, what I think is so interesting about learning is that for some people, it's a rather pedestrian HR function, which is a cost center, which let's keep training low. But I often think if you were to say to a board of directors, do you want your competitors to learn better than you, learn more effectively, learn the right things? Like, is that something you want? And no board would say yes. And so I think one of the reasons learning is interesting is that it actually is a strategic capability. Companies that learn well, perform well, and outperform their competitors. Companies that, that don't deteriorate. And yet the function of learning is often seen as second class. So I think there's a disconnect. And what you're getting at with your question is, well, where do you focus? Like, what is the unit of learning with the individual? I think there are lots of ways to come at that. One of it is, well, who are the people that need to learn stuff? You know, if I run, I don't know, a factory, maybe the factory workers need to learn how the operations work. There's some sort of training. <clears throat> but you might also say, well, who are the people in, and that the return on that investment is going to be short term. You, you, you train them to use the machine, they use it the next day or the next week. But you might say, actually, there are people on whom the return is going to be longer, and those people are leaders or future leaders. And you might identify them through a range of criteria that you have in your company or your organization. And you might invest in them as individuals. We think you are going to lead the company, so I have a leadership position, so we'll invest you for the longer term. So there's a kind of individual lens. But there's another way of looking at it, which is the business lens, which is instead of looking at the person, you say, where in this business do we need to innovate? Do we need to accelerate our performance? Do we need to transform? Do we need to have a step change? And, and almost always learning is at the heart of those accelerated change efforts. And so another way of looking at learning is through that organizational lens, maybe performance lens, where do we need increased innovation and kind of work back from that business. And then you end up with, it could be the unit, it could be the team, it could be the individual leader of that team and say, so what do you need to do uh, um, as almost a multiplier? What do you need to learn to help the performance increase? And so you're not choosing them because of their individual, let's call it athletic attributes. You're choosing them because of the performance of the business and how they, you know, the performance that's required from them. And so I think, Spencer, you referenced that other podcast. That's probably what I was speaking about then is what lens do you look at for learning? Is it individual or business? And then is it short-term or long-term? And I think out of that kind of conceptual framework, you can have a, a lot of different ways of, of driving learning and development in organization. I think, by the way, you know, the most effective leaders see themselves in that secondary lens, in that second bucket and not that first bucket. The most effective leaders don't learn necessarily for themselves or their own promotion, or their own skills. They're recognizing that their learning is a means to an end, that end being improved performance, improved culture, improved innovation. And you know, they see, in a way, I'm a leverage point in the system, or I'm a, I could be a multiplier in my organization. And, and they learn for that reason. And I think the most effective leaders learn to, to, to drive broad performance. And I think the least effective leaders view it rather more narrowly. Oh, I'm here to get a bit better, but I'm already good, so maybe I, maybe I needn't bother. And I think that's why there's a strong correlation between curiosity and effective leaders, because they're seeing themselves as drivers of broad performance. Jess, I'm sure this exchange has prompted some questions on your end. Absolutely. So, uh, James, I'm so happy that you take it there because I think that's a frustration for me um, talking to a lot of folks in learning development when 
they talk about the individual disconnected from the performance of the organization, you know, instead of in context and like, um, the same thing for the leaders, you know, like I think one of my favorite quotes ever, uh, back when Andy Grove was running Intel and he was kind of like the Elon Musk of the eighties or whatever, right. Um, he talked about the concept of learning being one of the highest leverage activities a CEO could do or senior leader could do because that, that upgrading of the entire team has such an incredible multiplication effect. Right. And so for me, it's, it's, uh, I just feel like people miss the mark so much when they think about learning as like a perk of like, Oh, you're a great employee. Let's do something nice for you. We'll, we'll let you, uh, skip work and do, uh, do this fun learning thing instead of like, no, no, we're playing a team sport. We want to get better at the team sport. Let's, let's get something together where people, after they spend time to, with us, they come out of it with a capacity that they didn't have. They come up with a capability, not like, yes, I enjoyed the PowerPoint and I didn't leave early check. It's like, no, they can actually do something they couldn't do before they came here. Um, so any, any thoughts or reactions to things that I just said there? Of course, I would agree with Andy Grove, <laughs> but I do. And I think one of the issues with learning, fun enough, my title is, I'm the head of Pine Street. I'm the chief learning officer of the firm. I don't use that title much. I don't talk much about learning because ironically, given all the said and done about growth mindset, ironically, there's a fixed mindset about learning. And I think many people think of learning, it takes them right back to a classroom where they're being spoken at by someone at the front of the room with content that's a variable interest. They'd rather be doing something else and it feels kind of abstract. And so that's a kind of, there's a, there's a bunch of old fashioned assumptions to do with learning that you fast forward to typically impatient, ambitious, results oriented professionals or athletes, or let's call them people who want to perform in, in any sphere. And that notion of learning is, is total anathema, like get me out of here. And so I think what, like the problem, you know, what you're saying just makes sense to me because people think of learning as that, not as what it could and should be, which is an energizing, mobilizing set of activities, which stimulate new insights, which prompt new action and which, which, which result in, in, in meaningful results for you, your team and your business. And so I think this word learning is a bit. Yeah, we almost need to upgrade. I say I don't use it. I talk about performance or innovation or acceleration. You know, there's a difference sort of like or results <clears throat> um, uh, or change because that's really what learning is about. Learning is the input, and it's not very interesting. The output is very meaningful. I love that. It makes me think that uh, Spencer picked a great name for this mini series, and we called it "Accelerating Talent." <laughs> so that's great. so. I would love to hear your thoughts on the methodologies that that do accelerate talent um, and, and what you found effective? Well, that's a big question. You could have a whole podcast series on this. In fact, you, you could have a whole book on this, but maybe we'll talk about a few, maybe we'll talk about just two or three, maybe two or three principles about, you know, accelerating talent. You know, I think I'll, I'll speak out loud and see whether I agree with what I've said. I think there are three things. There are processes, there are behaviors, and there's meaning. So for accelerating talent, by process, I mean like what are the what is the way that uh, as an organization we ident we select, identify, nurture, 
uh, and develop and improve our talent. And that could be everything from you know, how we hire, do we do performance reviews, if we do how, do we do learning, if we do how formally, informally. That's kind of processes. <clears throat> Behaviors, I think, is more about learning. Like how, how, am I, how am I showing up? What am I doing? And how do I improve? How do I keep raising the bar every year? And I'll, I'll come back to double click on, on what really, I think what, what was really important there. And then the third thing of accel accelerating talent is meaning, which sounds a bit abstract and maybe a bit woo-woo to folks. But what I'm getting at there is, is exactly this thing, you know, is, is when, we, when we're invited to a development, you know, do we think of it as learning, in brackets, boring, abstract, um, long-winded, where I, where I sit back? Or do I think about this as an accelerator to my results? You know, in brackets, intense, engaging, results-oriented. And so meaning is kind of how do we make sense of what's the context that we put around, what's the story we tell ourselves around how we are growing and growing our people. And that story you tell is super important uh, about the place of people and culture and performance and results and expectations. Is, this an is mine an organization where we expect performance to go up every year? If so, what are the levers we have at our disposal which are not working harder? Because the base case assumption in a performance organization is that we're already working very hard. So it's not around more effort necessarily, it's more smarts. And that, that is a conversation around meaning and expectation. So it's, it's super important that we get that right uh, in accelerating talent. The processes, I think, speak for themselves. In terms of behavior, maybe I'll, I'll say one or two things you know, about learning. Cle clearly, there is a place for... You know, if something is very technical, clearly there is a place for, you know, an expert saying to an individual, hey, this is how you do something that can be formal, that can be informal through an apprenticeship model. And Goldman's a very big apprenticeship culture. We can talk a bit more about that and the way that leaders lead and expectations on leads to develop their people. But fundamentally, you know, the thing, the thing that I think is, is often missed in, in leadership development isn't actually, is, is that content is overemphasized and experience in, is underemphasized. In other words, often I'm asked, what are the 10 things leaders should do? Or you go to a program and to just summarize it in five things, as though the idea that you would know what to do as a leader would help you improve your leadership. That's um, provably false, but we like it for various reasons, not the least of which is it seems easy. What matters much more is experience. Like what is the experience, how you internalize, almost metabolize learning and make it true for you. And there are two things that matter there. One is the notion of experimentation. So as a leader, rather than, say, rather than reading a book and saying, I'm now gonna do this thing that great leaders do, I think it's often more helpful to think about how do I experiment my way into something? How do I try something out? It's a bit like when you learn a new tune on an instrument, you don't just get great at it. You have to be a bit clumsy and give yourself permission to get better at it. And that permission is important for people that are ambitious and impatient and want to get on and who often for tolerance of failure is low. So you often need to give people permission and increase their tolerance of failure because you don't learn without failure by definition. That's one thing is experimentation. The other thing that's super important is the notion of reflection. In other words, learning together in a group and talking together about what matters. And there's a number of, we could go a number of places from here. We can go to the importance of coaching. Um, but I'll just make two points. One is when I'm teaching a class and, and at Pine Street at Goldman, we always say the smartest person is very unlikely to be at the front of the room. They're likely to be to the left and the right of you. 
And so giving, giving opportunities to design the programs to make sure that you're learning with and from peers is super important. It's important to learn. It's important to build, to build a culture of learning. And during COVID, one of the things I did during lockdowns, I wrote and I spoke to many of my peers. And one of the most interesting conversations I had was with a peer actually in the US military who said, what we're focused on is that the classic learning cycle by a guy called Cole, which is probably 80 years old now, is learn, do, review. It's very, you, know, you learn something, you do it, then you review. And in corporations and many, most organizations nowadays, the big focus is on learn and do because we tend to, we tend to be over-indexed on action, learn and do. We've under-indexed on reflect. And so in our programming, we have mu we've increased the amount of reflection there is. And that indeed has produced this wonderful benefit of consolidating learning and making sure that we develop this learning culture by reflecting together. So accelerating talent, process behavior meaning, old behavior, experimentation and reflection are two key things that I tend to be underplayed. I feel like there's so much wisdom in that. Um, I'm a big nerd for Honors Erickson and the, you know, the deliberate practice science and you're right that that scoreboarding at the end is something that it is often not done enough. And uh, maybe later in the conversation, we'll get into my kind of nerdy research on myelination <laughs> in the brain. So, but, uh, but Spencer, I know this is bringing up ideas for you too. What does it make you think about? Yeah, it? fascinating discussion. Uh, you know, James, I'm just thinking, trying to put myself in your shoes where workplace learning has experienced seismic change over the last decade, certainly accelerated by COVID. Uh, technology is evolving. Uh, the way we work has changed. Um, I guess my question for you is, you know, how have the skills and competencies to be an effective chief learning officer, or uh, maybe a better term based on what you just shared with us, like a chief performance officer, how, how have those changed and, and how might they need to change more? going forward? It's an interesting question. I, I have to say I'm even more intrigued by the thesis of your question, namely, you know, changing times mean changing skills. I mean, maybe it's because I studied history. I, I actually think, yeah, the core skills are, are actually rather, um, rather unchanging, ironically, meaning I think if you're if you're asked to design the architecture to help an organization advance its performance, I think it comes down to a couple of things, you know, a couple of core things, namely how well do you understand the business and what drives performance? How well do you understand the culture and um to understanding business, let's call it the hard levers, culture, let's call it the soft levers of our driving performance. So I think understanding is one is one bucket. I think clearly the second bucket is around, you know, the ability to design strategies and programs that will, that will positively affect uh, strategy and culture. And the third is how do you build credibility in the organization? Because in many organizations, if you don't have, uh, have a P&L, more specifically, if you don't drive the top line, in many organizations, in terms of the informal hierarchy, you're not, you're, you're not important. And so finding a way to manage in that environment, get credibility and drive impact is super important. And I don't know that 
the factors that you set out earlier have really changed those three things, understanding of the business drivers, ability to design interventions, and ability to have weight in the organization. I don't know that those three things have changed that much. I mean, maybe the way in which you do those things has changed. I mean, of course they must do. They change every year at least. But fundamentally, I think that's, that, that is what it takes. Your comments really lend well to maybe my next question. And, you know, Goldman is, is many things, one of which is an intelligence organization in that I refer to your reports from time to time. In fact, one came out maybe a month ago stating that globally we may, we may see 300 million jobs disappear or diminish as a result of generative AI. Um, and so I, I, I asked this question fully acknowledging that education as an industry is probably one that many see as uh, one that will be changed the most yeah. or should change the most. Um, you know, Bill Gates was recently on a panel uh, that I attended and, you know, he said, you know, gone are the days of going to a search engine, gone are the days of going to five, seven, 10 different sources to gather information where in the yeah. future, in the very near future, we will have personal learning agents. Yeah. And, and he, he brought this into the sphere of education by saying, you know, the thing that matters most for individuals, for students, for learners is having a eternally patient tutor or coach. Uh, and so I'm just trying to maybe draw this convergence between how learning I think will fundamentally change uh, and, and, and how a CLO needs to adapt to that or should adapt to that. I think that, so I have two, two answers, which are, are a little at odds with each other. So the first answer is we don't know. I don't know. And we don't know. I mean, we're on the threshold of, of, of what AI is going to do, not just to education, but to the, the world in which we live. And we, we simply don't know. And clearly, clearly, if you can, if, in terms of content provision, it seems to me that AI is far exceeds anything that we have than we have now and will do certainly in terms of its speed and accessibility and no doubt over time in terms of its quality and, and accuracy and precision as well. And therefore, when we talk about the, de quote, the delivery of learning, uh, then the learning that the industry is going to be completely transformed. And one of the things I said earlier is in respect of leadership development, certainly I think the provision of content is something that's overweighted mm. as though knowing what a leader should do would make me a better leader. Yeah, actually, the two things that I called out were about reflection and experimentation, both of which can only occur by you yourself. You can't outsource experimentation and you can't outsource reflection. Now, you can outsource a coach to help you to do those things. And maybe AI will provide a faster feedback loop. Maybe there's a way in which you know, an AI-enabled system will help you do that with more intentionality and get the feedback loop to be sharper. But nonetheless, you yourself still need to do those things. So in the content delivery, yes, AI is going to be transformative in ways that I, I, I'm, I'm not qualified to speak about. And in the kind of the timeless 
uh, view of what does it take to learn. Th those things are still going to require effort on behalf of uh, effort and, and, and falling over and picking yourself up and, and experiencing failure. That, 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 those, those, those human things are kind of eternal, unfortunately. But that's the, that's the pain and pleasure of learning. Jess, any thoughts on your end? Okay, I know, I know we only have so much time. So um, I think about, you know, I just looked up Goldman market cap right now was 108.3 billion, right? And I think last doubts I saw you guys had over 45,000 employees. Is that close? Is that that's, sound about that's, right? That's ballpark right, yeah. Okay, so um, talking about this idea of like, you need the information of what the skill set is. You need to actually practice it outside the comfort zone. And then you need, you need a scoreboard. You need to reflect to figure out if you did it right or what you need to do better the next time and do that loop over and over and over. And that's how we myelinate neurons in the brain and encode things into long-term memory and stuff like this, right? And so I think about, like, on my podcast, I, my most common guest is startup CEO who grew over a billion or grew over 100 million or something like this, right? And many of them have gone from a dozen staff or a couple of dozen staff into the thousands of staff in like a very short amount of time. And they probably got the boss as founder because they were good at sales or they were good at creating a product or, you know, very few of them came from a, a learner, you know, chief learning officer background. And yet they, they, as the organization grows and they can't, they can't build the organization out of sheer willpower. Then they start hearing quotes like Andy Grove, like one of the highest leverage things you can do is upgrade, upgrade the capacity of everyone who works with you, right? And so then they start to look to experts like you of like, how do I do this at scale? Now, most of the people on my show don't have 45,000 staff. So I think that you make a perfect mentor of like people who are leading and going like, yeah, how do I not just talk at people? How do we not just send information to people? How do we get them to use it enough, like stretching themselves, and then pause and take the time to figure out if they're using it correctly and self-correct. How do you do that at scale? What advice would you have for, for high growth CEOs? Often I remind people the most, you know, back to this thing about learn, what is learning? Built they go into classroom. No, no, no. The most developmental experience anyone has in their career is the job they do. Like the work you do is the most developmental thing. You know, one of the things we often do in our programs for, for senior leaders is it's a bit of a segue, but I want to just talk about a practical tool for people. Is If you imagine a graph, if you imagine on the x-axis is time and the y-axis is learning. By the way, the y-axis could be something. It could be energy or happiness or pleasure or fulfillment, but let's call it learning. And then if I were to give you that, that, that graph, and then I were to ask you, could you draw a line for yourself, for your career? By the way, it could be your whole life. What are the moments, how, what would your graph look like? So to task one is draw, the, draw your learning line. Task two, notice, what do you see about the learning graph of your life? What is its shape? How many peaks and troughs are there? When are there periods of intense, intense, um, an intense angle? And when is there plateauing? Just what do you notice? Third, a bit of diagnosis. So what are three or four parts of that graph that really strike you? It could be I plateaued here. It could be I had three real peaks and, or two troughs. Or it could be that angle of ascent or descent was really like what, what, what jumps out to you in, in psychotherapy and say what's figural? 
about your graph. So one, draw the graph. Two, notice. Three, prioritize. What are some elements? And then four, what, what conclusions and lessons do you draw from your own learning? Now, usually when you have people do that exercise, which by the way is, quite, is, is not an exercise that people have done very often before, normally what they say is the periods of most intense learning was as a result either of the work I was doing and or the people with whom I was working most, particularly my boss, but could also be a mentor, sponsor, team, subordinate, supplier, customer, client, whomever it is. And if you do that exercise, yeah, I'm talking it through because perhaps some people listening to this podcast would want to take take some time to do that for themselves. But if I was coaching a C, if I was coaching a startup CEO, I might start there and have them reflect on how they learned. And based on those lessons, what does that mean for the way you lead your organization? And Typically, I don't want to lead the witness because people should come to their own conclusions, but typically what people realize is, wow, the greatest teacher I've had is the leader I work for. And by the way, they could have been a great teacher or they could have been a terrible teacher. But either way, I learn a lot, either about what to do or what not to do. And so my aim in doing that is to remind people and hopefully encourage people learning isn't about flashy development programs in some far-flung location. It's about what are you doing at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday and how are you doing it? And with what intentionality do you step back and then reflect on what you would learn by doing it? So actually, that, 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 that is the key kind of insight and piece of encouragement that we give to the CEOs and CEOs on entrepreneurs. Like learning is occurring right now. So the tool is being deliberate in the way you lead and being deliberate in the way you help your people draw lessons out of what's occurring. You know, as you were just talking that through to us, like I, I was visualizing this big up and down line and I was answering yeah. these questions about. Yeah, we could when, just, when I like, well, if you, I don't know if you <laughs> Right. And I was thinking about these times when it's like, uh, we started a new business or we had a new challenge. And so I was right. hungry and I needed it. So where I thought of like, when I discovered a new principle that just like felt like the world could expand if I could gain some mastery at it. And I, you know, would read a dozen books on the subject and talk to people, you know, like, I think about these things and think like um, it was never because somebody else set the agenda of like, Jess, it's time to learn this. That's right. You didn't, you didn't go to a class. That's just not how it worked. And like, sometimes I, I was seeking out a class and I, you know, you know, I went and did a week at Harvard. I took this online thing. I ordered the Warren Buffett DVD class back when we were doing things on DVDs. Okay? But anyways, that was a great experiment for me as I think about our own organizations and and, and the companies that I lead. You know, in my view, learning is what is, is, is one of the most underused leadership levers. As in, your levers for leadership, people think about, oh, I'm going to give a speech, or I'm going to take my team out for dinner, or I'm going to set a three-year strategy with very inspirational goals, or we're going to have a big, hairy, audacious goal, and we're going to do this. Actually, teaching and, teaching and helping a team to learn is a key leadership tool. You know, one of the quotes that we like to say is, Good leaders develop followers. Great leaders develop leaders. And, they do, and the key is develop. How do you develop? And often if a leader takes some time to think, how do I intentionally think about what have I... Now, Jess, if I were to ask you, why you had all this... Life gave you... Life turns out the best... I know it sounds hokey, but life was your teacher during that. You think about that graph. Okay, if you were to codify those lessons and try to play them back to your team, you know, what, what's the... You know, be an interesting experiment. What's the class you wish you could have taken five years ago? 
what would that class be? And who else would benefit from hearing it? Now it turns out that you've had that learning and all that was acquired, I don't mean all in that it was simple, but I mean all in that it's one step, is to, st is, is to, is to, st is to step back and reflect on codify your, you know, the lessons. Otherwise, it goes back to that reflection thing that I was talking about earlier, the, the importance of reflection. You know, maybe we have time for one more question here. Uh, maybe I'll close this off with a, a different, maybe a different angle. Um, it's obvious that you have thought deeply about these subjects, that you've researched, that you spent time, um, you know, over the last maybe 14 years that I've been more involved in the L&D industry, I've got to meet a lot of folks in your position. And, and it's obvious to me that you bring more intentionality to it than a lot of people I've spent time with. Um, and, and, you know, hence the reason you're leading one of the, you know, leading at one of the premier brands in the entire world. Um, what do you think is different about you? There's so many people that would like to have achieved what you've achieved and haven't. What, what have you done that others haven't or what's different about you? Let me answer that question a little bit, a little bit orthogonally. You know, when people say to me, what is it that, how'd you, how'd you get on? How'd you get on in a job, in a career? How'd you build a career? I think there are four things. I think, I think hard work is at the basis of it all. I think you don't get on unless you work hard. I think you need to be skilled and invest in your skills so that every year they go up. I think you need to manage your relationships in a system so that you can have impact. And I think you need to be lucky. And I think the more senior you are, the more lucky you need to be. And so I guess, I, I don't know when you I don't know that I am different. I don't know what's different, but I guess I would say I, 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 those four things have been true for me in one, you know, in one, in one dimension or another. And I don't know if it's different at all, but what I, I, I you could compare, I can't, but what I do know about myself is that I believe, you know, back to, back to in my head and in my heart, learning and leadership is central to performance and to transformation and to results. And so I think what we do is of the highest importance. And I know that sounds a bit pompous, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm aware of that, but I really do think that it, it's it's the it's the beginning and end of of performance and kind of meaning in the world. And so that that is a, I think we engage in a very important mission. By the way, we I mean the three of us on this podcast, those that are listening, you know, if we if we're not learning, then then something you know, we 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 need to learn in the world. And so that's a posture I adopt. And our team adopts, and our hopefully our firm adopts as we as we move through, you know, for our clients and our communities. Uh, James, just imagine yourself in front of uh, a number of soon to be newly minted graduates, kind of the rising generation of of graduates. Um, what is the one piece of advice that you would give them? Oh, that's such a tough question, Spencer. I was about to get off easily. You know, our CEO, David Solomon, just gave the graduation um, speech at NYU Stern, and he was talking about it, and I was thinking, my goodness, I'm glad I didn't have to do that. And um, by the way, I think these people put, put in weeks of advice. Uh, I think what I would say is, I think what I would say is, I, this is kind of the top of my head, like, whatever you do, do it fully. Like, whatever you do, do it fully. Be, be present, be here, be now, and be in it. I think I think that as a general posture in life, 
being present is the foundation to, to all good things. Well, it looks like you'll be giving the commencement address at NYU next year with that, James. That's uh, powerful. I don't think so. Maybe I don't think so. Thank you, Thank you for the question. I think <laughs> this is so great. Well, listen, um, if people uh, are inspired and they say, I wish I worked in an organization that, that uh, took my accelerating talent seriously, where should they be going if they want to learn more about Goldman and uh, if they want to connect with you personally? They should go to goldmanslacks.com uh, and, and you'll find information there. And then uh, what about yourself? Are you, are you a LinkedIn guy or anything or where are you? I am on LinkedIn. I say it nervously. Uh, <clears throat> because uh, it's a bit difficult to manage some time. But yes, I'm on, I am on LinkedIn. Well, thanks again for doing this. Thank you for the invitation. I, 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 I said yes because I, I thought I'd learn and I loved your questions and the dialogue and I hope those that have listened to our conversation have found something helpful as well. I'm sure they have. Bye, everyone.